Luke leaves us with this great passage. One might perhaps feel as if it's kind of tacked on at the end. It's pretty quick. It's only four verses. If you look back at the verses immediately prior to verse 50, Luke goes right from Jesus meeting with his disciples in Jerusalem on Resurrection Sunday to the Ascension. Whereas the other gospel writers tell us a little bit about Jesus' remaining time with the disciples. He was there with them on and off, appearing to them and teaching them for 40 days after his resurrection. Luke jumps right over all of that. He'll come back and tell us more detail in Acts chapter 1, but Luke has a reason why he wants to move very quickly to the ascension. And you're going to see that as we look at this passage together today. In the passage that I've just read, we see something that is rather surprising, at least at first glance. I wonder if you noticed it. I'm referring to the reaction of the disciples to what just happened. Jesus has left them, and they're happy. I wonder if that's what you expected. When a few weeks before this event, as Jesus was together with his disciples in the upper room, He told them that he was going to be leaving them. And at that time, they were sad. And he had to speak words of encouragement to them to keep them from being downcast and disconsolate. Now he actually does leave and they're happy. So I wonder... Is that what you would expect? Or, like me, are you scratching your head a little bit? Why would they go back to Jerusalem with great joy when their Lord has just left them? If Jesus came to live and minister here at Red Mills Baptist Church for three years and then left us, would we be happy about it? Over the past year, many of us have lost people. If we lose someone, but we know they're in Christ, we're not sorry for them. We know where they are, they are where they want to be, and as much as they may have loved us, they would never want to come back to us. They are happy with their Savior. But it's those of us who are left behind that feel the loss. That's natural. That's human. So what's going on here? Why aren't the disciples feeling that loss? How in the world could they be happy in the face of the departure of Jesus? Well, there are a number of things here in the text that I think help explain this for us. Help us to answer this question because this passage teaches us about joy and it teaches us about hope and it teaches us about blessing. 
And if we could go in reverse order, I want to start this morning by looking at verses 52 and 53 and then work our way backwards to some extent. I want you to see why Jesus' departure gave the disciples joy. Do you remember how Luke begins his gospel? He begins his gospel in the temple. Zecharias, the father of John the Baptist, is there in the temple performing his priestly duties when an angel appears to him to tell him that his wife is going to give birth to the forerunner of the Messiah. Now, how does the gospel end? It ends with the disciples continually in the temple, praising God. That's not a coincidence. At the beginning of the gospel, Jesus, sh- uh, Luke rather, shows you a series of godly people crying out to God that he would send salvation upon his people. There is Zecharias and his wife Elizabeth. There is Simeon and Anna. There is Mary herself. Zecharias is at the temple. Mary brings her child to the temple. Simeon and Anna gaze upon the promised Messiah there at the temple. And Luke records all of those things taking place in the temple at the beginning of his gospel as his people cry out to God to send them salvation. And what happens in the rest of the book Luke spends the rest of his gospel recording God's response to that outcry. God answers. And that answer comes in the one named Jesus. And so here at the end of the gospel, what do we find? The disciples go back to Jerusalem. They go back to the temple filled with joy and continually praising God. Why are they filled with joy? They're filled with joy because they finally understand. They understand Jesus' mission and they understand Jesus' message. They understand who he is and they understand what God has done in sending the Messiah to die and to be buried and to rise again and now to be taken on high to sit at the right hand of the Father. Of course there's joy. It's not the joy that is strange. It would be strange if they were not filled with joy, having now come to understand. Remember what we've seen throughout Luke's gospel. We have seen a group of disciples who didn't understand anything. Jesus is constantly filling them in, and they don't get it. They never understand. Jesus is telling them, yeah, I'm going to die. And then I'm going to rise again. And he tells them, before it happens, this is, what, this is, this is how it's going to go. And then it happens, and what, they, they just forget everything. And they take off and leave him there, alone. Now, they rejoice. Because they understand. This is actually easier to understand if one remembers what we find in the Gospel of John, particularly if you 
go back and you look at the 14th chapter and the 16th chapter of John, just a a few weeks before what Luke describes here in our passage this morning, Jesus is in the upper room with his disciples. It's the night on which he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. And that night, as he was gathered together with them for the Last Supper, he says to them, I am going away, but I am sending a comforter to be with you. My comforter. And I am going away and I am sending my comforter so that your joy may be full. And what happened to all of the disciples when he said that? Go back and read it in John. They got sad. They got sad because they didn't understand. They got sad because they were short-sighted. They got sad because they could only see with their physical eyes. But here, they're on the way back to Jerusalem, and they're filled with great joy because they finally understand what Jesus had been trying to communicate to them for so long. They finally understood God's purposes. They understood Jesus' words about his humiliation and his exaltation. They understood what God was doing, that he had answered the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Anna and Simeon and Mary. And so they were filled with great joy. They believed and it gave them joy. Jesus' departure fulfilled what he had explained to them. And they were filled with joy. I trust that you're filled with that same joy. If you call yourself a Christian then you will be, if you truly are. If you've repented of your sin and trusted in Christ as your Savior, you, like the disciples, will be filled with joy because you have come to understand all that God has been doing in sending his Son so that his Son could go to the cross in our place as our substitute. And then be raised again for our justification. When we come to see not only our sin, but also the salvation which God has accomplished for us. And we trust in that salvation whose name is Jesus. How can we keep from being joyful? It's one of the promises of scripture. God's people will have the joy of the Lord. It's one of the commands of Scripture. Read Philippians. Paul says again and again, rejoice. And again I say, rejoice. And he's writing that, I'll remind you, to a persecuted church. Well, now that joy has found its source, we see that it is not only in the past, it's not only in the understanding of what Christ has done, but that joy also finds its source in the future. That joy finds its source in hope. That's the second thing I want you to see 
this morning in this passage because Jesus' ascension gives the disciples hope. Not only did they have great joy, but they were given hope as well. Look at verse 51. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now Luke uses two phrases here to describe the ascension. The first phrase is that Jesus was parted from them. Other translations may say he went off from them or he was separated from them. It's all the same idea. The second phrase says that he was carried up or taken up into heaven. That's how Luke describes the ascension here. Now, here in his gospel, Luke devotes a single verse to that event. In the sequel to his gospel, which is the book of Acts, Luke will elaborate on this. But no matter where it's discussed, the ascension is to be seen as a ground of hope for the followers of Jesus Christ. The New Testament is replete with examples of how the doctrine of the ascension of Christ provides hope for his people. Let me just walk through a few of the things that the New Testament says about the way the ascension gives us hope. The first is this. The ascension shows that Christ's exaltation will one day be something that the whole world will see. In seeing Jesus exalted into heaven, the disciples are seeing something which one day the entire world will see. You remember what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 through 11. For this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is the Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, guess what the disciples are getting to see with their own eyes? As he ascends, what they are witnessing is his enthronement. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the right hand of the Father, where he will sit down because his work is through. The disciples are getting to see his enthronement ceremony. They are seeing what one day the whole world is going to see. In that wonderful Christmas hymn, once in royal David's city, there's a line that says, And at last our eyes will see him through his own redeeming love. In other words, one day we're going to see him with our own eyes, and we are going to see him like the disciples saw him. In the stanza after that one, the author, Cecil Alexander, writes this, Not in that poor lowly stable will we see him standing by, but we will see him as the Lord, the Lord of all. 
That's what's waiting. We're going to see him like that, and the entire world is going to see him like that. With angels, myriads of angels around him, falling down and worshiping him. That's how we're going to see him. And the disciples have been given a glimpse of that as Jesus ascends through the clouds to his father. They've been given a glimpse of what the entire world is going to one day see. No wonder they're filled with joy and hope. They have the promise that they will not only see Jesus again, but they will see more than they have already seen. I mean, it's a pretty amazing thing when you think about it. You're standing there, and Jesus is just going away. I think any one of us would be pretty satisfied with that and yet the promise the hope and hope remember when we talk about hope biblically it's not wishful thinking it's a sure and certain hope it simply refers to something that has not happened yet but is certain to occur and the disciples are seeing this glorious sight and their hope is more glorious still. And it won't be only them, it will be the entire world. They've seen the end of the story, at least a glimpse of it. One day he will come again and it will be just like that. He will be the Lord of glory and everyone will know it. Another way in which the ascension gives us hope is that it serves as Christ's vindication. It's the Father's vindication of Jesus, much in the same way the resurrection is the vindication of Jesus. It shows that the Father has accepted Jesus' work on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says this, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. God gave his son Jesus Christ so that Jesus could live a perfect life, a life that we could not live, and die a death which we deserve to die so that his righteousness would be imputed to us and and we could be forgiven of our sins and so the spirit might be imparted to us and one day we could be completely glorified, sin eradicated from us. And then to dwell with God forever. And Jesus' ascension is the promise to us that as we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, we are going to be where he is. The Father has called him to be with him at his throne. And we who trust in him, as he is offered in the gospel, will go to be with Jesus. And the ascension proves that. It proves that God accepts his sacrifice. Another way that the ascension results in hope for Jesus' people is that it initiates Jesus' work, which we're told about in John 14, of going to prepare a place for us. You remember how in John chapter 14, 
once again, the disciples are downcast. Jesus has just told them again that he's going away, and they're sad. And Jesus says, don't be sad, don't fear. I'm going away, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and bring you there to where I am, that you may be there also. The ascension is the beginning of that. Where is Jesus going? He's going to the Father's right hand. To do what? To begin to prepare a place for you. And a place for me. What will that place be like? I don't know. But it is sure to be so glorious that it is beyond our imaginations. What we do know is that that work began when Jesus ascended to the Father. Here's another thing that the ascension does in regard to hope. It guarantees the future glory that is our inheritance. Hebrews 9.15 says that Jesus Christ himself is our guarantee. He is the guarantee of all that God has promised. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 2 goes so far to say that if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you've embraced Christ in the gospel, then you are already seated with him in the heavenly places. Ephesians 2, you'll remember, Paul is setting forth the means by which we have been saved. First half of the chapter, he's talking about individuals. Second half, he's talking about what Christ has done to bring together his church, Jew and Gentile. And there, at the beginning of Ephesians 2, he talks about who we used to be. He's speaking to believers. He's writing to the church. And he says... You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Then he describes all that that means. But he follows that up by saying, you were dead, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We're already there, Paul says. So why am I standing up here looking at you? Because what Paul's doing is this. Saying, I want you to understand your hope and the certainty of your hope. The fact that there will come a day when we are seated with Christ is so sure and so certain that we can speak of it as if it's already the case. There's our hope, brothers and sisters. That's the guarantee. Even as, G- 
even after the ascension, as Jesus went to the right hand of the Father, if you are united to him by the work of the Holy Spirit, if you are united to him by faith, you are already there with him. Because Jesus is our guarantee. The promise of God in regard to our eternal future is so certain that Paul can speak of it as already being ours. Already our experience. If you belong to Christ by faith, it is absolutely certain that you will be with him forever. Jesus himself is the guarantee of our future enjoyment of glory with him. Here's something else. The ascension of Jesus Christ enabled him to pour out his spirit upon his people. You remember again, going back to John 14, John 16, key passages in this whole understanding of the ascension and what Jesus had promised he would do after he left. There, Jesus says, I go so that I can send you a comforter. When we looked at the previous passage in the Gospel of Luke, we saw right there in verse 49, Jesus says, Behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. That is the promise of the Spirit. It's what Luke then fleshes out in Acts chapter 1, where Jesus says to the disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. And then in Acts chapter 2, the Spirit comes. The Spirit is poured out. In fact, as the Spirit is poured out, flames that, that look like uh, fire appear on the heads of the apostles in Jerusalem as they've gathered for the Feast of Pentecost. And we're told that that is the fulfillment of the prophecy made through Joel. It's fulfilled. Now, What is that to be a visible reminder of? If the Spirit has been poured out upon them, where must Jesus be? He must be with the Father. Because he said, I'm leaving so that I can send my Spirit. I can send the Comforter. We can't see him at the right hand of the Father, but we can see the effect of him. Being at the right hand of the Father, he has poured out his Spirit upon us. And what did the Spirit do? The Scripture says the Spirit came to do a lot of things, but turn back with me for a moment to Ephesians chapter 3. And look beginning with verse 14. For this reason, Paul says, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Let me summarize that for you. 
I'm getting this particularly from the end of verse 16 and into verse 17. Paul desires that God would grant believers, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in the inner man. But don't stop there. That's a great thing. We want that. But that's not an end in itself. Paul wants us to be strengthened with power through the spirit in the inner man. Why? There is a purpose. What is that purpose? Paul says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. So listen to this. This is what Paul is telling us. Jesus departed from us so he could be nearer to us. He departed from us so that he could dwell within us. Christ left us so that the Spirit would come to us because when the Spirit comes to us, Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. You know, if Jesus were still living on the earth, he could be close to a few of his disciples at a time. But by the ascension and the pouring out of the Spirit, he is near to all of his people all of the time because the Holy Spirit makes our hearts a suitable habitation for the living Christ. He departed from us so that he could be nearer to us. Here's one last thing. Jesus' ascension draws our hearts to him so that our desires are now focused upon him. The author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 11, says that Abraham was looking for a city that had foundations, whose architect and maker was God. In other words, the author of Hebrews is saying that Abraham's hope wasn't ultimately on this earth or on promises that had to do with this earth. He was looking for a city that had foundations that God had built and that was going to last forever. And that's a good thing because do you know how much land Abraham owned when he died? He owned his own grave and he owned the grave of his wife, Sarah. That's how much of the promised land he possessed. But that was okay because he was looking for something better. He was looking for a city that had foundations. He was looking for a heavenly city. And now every believer is to remember that the one who we really want to be with is at the right hand of the Father right now. Now, what does that mean? What does it not mean? It doesn't mean that we don't work hard for the glory of God in this life. We do. We work hard with energy and with hope and with joy because we want to do everything as unto the Lord. But our success is not ultimately the reward that we're looking for. We can be faithful and suffer all kinds of obstacles and setbacks and failures. Our job is to be faithful because this is not where we get the final report card. 
This is not where we get our final reward. Our reward is seated at the right hand of God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. And our eyes are on the prize that he offers us. Nothing in this earth can offer us anything that can equal what he offers because he said, I came to give you joy, inexpressible and full of glory. And the ascension reminds us, this is where my hope is. Here's very quickly the last thing that I want to leave you with. In this passage, we've seen the great joy that the disciples had because they finally got it. (laughs) They finally understood. We've seen the reason for their hope as a basis for their joy. But there's one last thing I want you to see. And as I said, we're moving backwards. So look there at verse 50. He led them out as far as Bethany. And he lifted up his hands And blessed them. That is, he pronounces a benediction upon them. That's what is being described there. He's imitating that which was done by the Levitical priests under the Old Covenant. He was pronouncing words of blessing upon the people of God. Jesus lifts up his hands to bless them, and as he's blessing them, he is taken away. I just want you to think about that for a minute. In Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, God creates man and woman. And do you know what the first words that human beings ever heard from God were? You can peek back into Genesis one twenty eight if you want, but I'll tell you. They were words of blessing. The text says, the Lord blessed them and said. First words, Genesis one twenty eight. First words that human beings ever heard from God were words of blessing. Now, two chapters later, we rebelled against him. But God still pursued us in order to bless us. And at the end of Genesis 11, we're told that God went to Ur of the Chaldees, and he found there the son of an idolater, an idolater named Terah, who had a son named Abram. And there in Ur of the Chaldees, modern-day Iraq, he called an Iraqi idolater's son and said, you are going to be the father of my people. And do you know what he did to that idolater's son in Genesis 12? He blessed him. And he promised to bless him. I will bless you and make your name great, and in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. He pursued that idolater's son with blessing, and Abram became the father of the faithful, the father of those who believe, Paul says in Romans 4. 
And what do you see Jesus doing here at the very end of the Gospel of Luke? The very last thing his disciples see Jesus doing to them is blessing them. The very last thing they hear from him are words of blessing. With all their stumbling about, all their unbelief, all of their unfaithfulness, the last thing they see and hear from their Lord is him pronouncing a blessing. It is a picture of the divine son accomplishing the father's purpose in redemption. The purpose that he came to accomplish. He came to make his blessing flow far as the curse is found. And here, as Jesus recedes into heaven, the last thing they see, the last thing they hear, is their Lord, who knew every failure and every sin, blessing them. There is joy, and there is hope, and there is blessing. For all who would bow the knee to Jesus Christ, who would repent and come to him in faith. And if you will do that, then that joy and that hope and that blessing is yours as well. If you have not turned from your sin and come to Christ in faith, then I encourage you to do that. Do it now. Do it today. Today is the day of salvation. The offer is made. The response is yours. Father, thank you. Father, I trust that this has been an encouragement to your people. It has been an encouragement to me. Father, so many promises are wrapped up in the ascension of Jesus Christ and his enthronement at your right hand in glory. From that place, he will return. And he will judge the living and the dead. And he will lead his people into everlasting glory in the fullness of each and every promise that is ours. Thank you, Father, for this. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.